I'm Andrew Constantine, and this is a stick with a point. Hello everyone, and welcome to my podcast, where I explore the lives and careers of some of the most important essential workers of the classical music industry. The folks behind the scenes without whom this business simply doesn't work. In this episode, I interview Jennifer Higdon, probably the most sought-after and respected composer working today. I hope you enjoy it. Jennifer, hello. Thank you so much for speaking to me today. That's good to be here. Now, I'm going to dive in at the deep end, and I'm going to read you a quote, um, and then I'd like you to explain it to me, because I'm not sure I understand it. It says, because I came to classical music very differently than most people, the newer stuff had more appeal for me than the older. Oh, go for it. Tell me all about that. <laughs> I didn't grow up around classical music at okay. all. So I grew up around rock and roll. My dad was a commercial artist working at home, and he always had music on, but it, it wasn't classical it wasn't straight classical so most of the people i know who are in classical music all grew up around classical music and so i think for me the first pieces i heard that i can remember being classical i remember uh, copeland's appalachian spring i didn't know what it was at the time but it happened to be playing on um, i think it was university of tennessee the radio station the classical station there but for me, the music was way more engaging, the newer stuff. But I think it's because it had the energy of what I'd grown up hearing around the house, closer to rock than it is to uh, slower evolving music in general. Well, I have to say that all of your music that I know is, is pretty driven. There's um, a very dynamic rhythmic impulse to it. Uh, and you think that comes from that? Or is that your basic disposition? <laughs> Both. <laughs> it's both. Although I have, it's funny you mentioned that because I'm working right now on a mandolin concerto and I'm on the slow, one of the slow movements. And I was thinking about the fact that most people know me for the faster music. Mm -hmm. uh, Blue Cathedral, which is probably my most well-known work, is probably doesn't fall in that category too much. It's probably on the slow lyrical side, but for some reason people seem to know my faster moving stuff much more. Yeah, well, Blue Cathedral was such a personally intense moment, I imagine, that mm -hmm. uh, that the muse came to you in, in a different way at, at, at that point. Um, I don't know if you want to go into that at all. Or, or It doesn't really matter. I mean, I talk about it a lot, but it's, it's, it's funny because the way I do my commissions, I'm very lucky because I get to write a lot of pieces on, actually everything I write is on commission. Mm. And so... I have enough people asking that I'm actually able to think about what order I want the pieces to go in. And I actually try to basically alternate between different genres. So I don't, I don't particularly like doing like two concertos back to back, although I've done it before, but I finished a concerto. Let me think. I think this was in the end of June, a double percussion concerto for the Houston symphony. Um, and rather than jump to the mandolin concerto, which is the thing I'm working on right now, I did four chamber works in between. So I try to kind of mix up the, the genres, but I also try to make sure I really think about 
some slow lyrical stuff contrasting to some of the intensity, like the concerto I finished in June was a double percussion concerto. So there was a lot of frenetic activity with that. Now, what exactly is a double percussion concerto? Is it for two players? Or yep, simply? two players ah, at the front right. of the stage. So, and so what you try to do is figure out the, basically the best way to handle that musically. And because I started that right before the pandemic really kicked in here in the US, the, I think the piece is more lyrical in general. I mm. noticed that it was a little different than my, my first percussion concerto, which has quite a bit more drums and mm. non-pitched percussion. This is all pitched percussion. It's vibraphone, marimba, and lots of timpani. So, um, and the players move around to the, the different things. But I've noticed that maybe because of the pandemic or something that my mood has been more in a more melodic I guess a more melodic tone. I it's a hard thing, you know, when you're the one writing it every day, you don't really sit down and analyze what you're doing. Although I think I had to do an interview right off the bat about the double percussion concerto, and that's still a ways off the premiere, but. Right. right. Yeah. So uh, when, when it comes to the actual process of of composing, do you, do you have some sort of regimen that you stick to? I mean, do you, do you allocate three hours in the morning to when you will compose? I know some composers do that. Yeah, no, I write every day. Hmm. I mean, I make my living from writing. So it means, yeah, I'm, I write probably four to six hours a day, uh, probably about six days a week. I used to do seven days a week. But I think uh, after I wrote my opera, Cold Mountain, my body was like, you're going to have to take a break at some point in the week. But I write in the morning and I write in the afternoon. I mean, I do both. And then I just squeeze in things around the writing. The writing gets scheduled first um, and then everything gets adjusted to that. So like the teaching I do at Curtis is a mere two hours a week. The whole school is adjunct. So I only do two uh, composition lessons a week. So I literally spend every day writing. I read as well that um... Um, when you were in, in college, you were incredibly disciplined because you came to music uh, rather late. And um, you made, you've made amazing progress, young lady, if you don't mind me saying. So um, I, do you find yourself, do you think of yourself as a very disciplined individual? Yeah, I think I probably have always been pretty disciplined. I mean, when you grow up in a household with an artist making a living who's like a freelance artist working in the house, it does mean that you kind of witness someone making a living from being very disciplined, drawing every day, going into a studio and drawing. And so I think I've probably always been pretty disciplined. I mean, my dad always said, you can be an artist, you just have to figure out how to make a living, which that's very logical when you think about it. But it also means you, you have to think about it when you enter a college and you have zero background in classical music, which means you're starting in... God, I guess I was just basically starting from ground zero. I mean, I was taking remedial classes. I didn't know what chords were and intervals and things like that. You have to be disciplined because the mountain you have to climb is so huge. Um, and it felt like that all the way through school, through all my degrees. It felt very much like I was climbing a mountain. And I, I constantly being told, man, you, you started late. I don't know if you're going to be able to do this. So, But the thing was, I loved music so much that I just kind of ignored it, to be quite mm -hmm. honest. Yeah, I find that um, really inspiring, um, and, and, and I hope uh, other people listening to this will, will find it inspiring as well, because uh, it shows that, um, first of all, talent can't be held back, 
ultimately, and that talent with application is is what takes us all forwards. And um, uh, this pandemic is is leading to a lot of new skill sets that we're all having to address. And um, I said to somebody the other day that I'm enjoying the pandemic, and I hope that's not offensive to some people, but I'm enjoying it because it's giving me time to listen to music. And uh, when you're constantly trying to prepare to perform music, um, you suddenly realize that you're cutting down on, on the amount of music you listen to yourself and, and that the, the pleasure has gone from it. And I'm, I'm actually enjoying listening to music and I'm finding it inspiring. And of course, we all tell people how inspiring music is. And at last it's happening. Yeah, I've come back to it. So I'm not saying carry on with the pandemic. Don't get me wrong. But there are, we've got to take positives out of it. I have to admit, I've talked to a lot of solos who've been on the road, and they actually were expressing the same sentiment. They said that it was amazing that, in reality, they were having a chance to sit down and like play through Bach or something, things they don't normally get to do because they're racing from one concert or one rehearsal to the next. Yeah. And if you're a working musician, you don't have a lot of time. I guess you just have a lot of time. You're so busy making a living. And so as a consequence, that means, yeah, when things slow down. Ironically for me, it, that did not change. I didn't really get that option because I, I literally leapt into the project I was writing on, but also suddenly I was getting so many Zoom requests because uh, most of the universities stopped at their spring break and everyone had to figure out how they were going to teach the remainder of the semester. So I think I was doing like three or four zoom presentations a week from the moment i got in i i came in march 8th i came in i had to quarantine because i've been out on the road for three weeks but it's been non-stop actually and i've just been riding and doing things i haven't had a chance to slow down yet I which don't is all that, wonderful it may be but i don't know it may not be the healthiest thing too i don't know we'll see how my sanity holds up i think that's <laughs> going to be the, the bigger test well you seem to thrive on it which is a wonderful thing yeah, I do. I do tend to thrive on a lot of activity, but I do know also there's benefits to having quieter time. It does affect your composing a lot. Well, I'm going to come back to that in a little bit, and I, I, I want now to actually stay with some of those earlier years for you and ask you, was there a, a kind of a tipping point uh, when you, you thought that, um, that this composing lark might actually work long term? <laughs> I think it was the day I won the Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> well, that'll do it. <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny. I uh, People ask me that all the time, and I'm like, oh, gosh, it seems like I was so busy trying to get things to work that I didn't really stop to think about it. But that was such a big event, I, I kind of stopped for a moment and said, what the heck happened? And that, that may have been the moment that I had a conscious thought that, oh, I can make this work. Although I was making it work before then, but it was probably the first moment where I could actually pause or maybe so many reporters were asking me. I think maybe that was it. I think I did like maybe a hundred interviews in two weeks or something like that. Something really incredible. Oh, hey, I thought that was a really unique question there. <laughs> <laughs> no. Joking aside, though, let, let me try and frame that question then in, in a slightly different way. And that is um, um, your your perseverance and your determination. It sounds as though you would never have considered doing anything else. And once you decided you were going to be a composer, that was what was going to take you forwards. Yep, that's exactly it. That's exactly the way I was approaching it. I have Damn, to admit. I, I wish I'd thought of that question. <laughs> 
failure didn't feel like an option to me. And I just figured if I kept working and was very disciplined about things, I would eventually get there. Well, you know, I um, I was reading a few things about you uh, in, in preparation for this and um, finding wonderful praise for all sorts of works, most of your works, and then finding the odd bit of cutting criticism. Oh, there'll always be odd bits of cutting criticism, though. Yeah, well, the good thing is, of course, that these critics, posterity never treats them very well when they get it wrong. <laughs> oh, but, you know, this was interesting. One, I found out early on in my career, this was a fascinating thing. I cannot remember what the festival I was at, but I was at a festival that had a bunch, it was at a university, and there were a bunch of critics there. This festival had a component with music criticism, and they were all standing around talking. I was about to have an orchestra rehearsal. They were all standing around talking in the auditorium. And they were explaining to me that there are several different types of critics. There are the critics who love watching someone's career and will write on it. And then there are critics who love to knock people down. That They just they go for that right off the bat. Mm. And I remember thinking, good grief. I mean, what is the point? <laughs> so I have had, I've been very lucky and I've gotten so many reviews. But it's amazing to me I can have a performance and the reviews complete can be completely at opposite spectrums. And then I've had performances where I thought, wow, the piece did not turn out well. It was not performed well. And the critic thought it was great. And I thought, well, you know, what are you going to do? But if you love what you're doing, you just keep on going. I don't, I don't, there's not, it's just not even worth messing with what's been written in the first place. I don't read it. I don't read, there's no reason for me to ingest it. I have so many performances every year that if I were to read all the reviews, I'd go out of my mind. But the thing is, these are people writing words about music. I write music. Yeah. They're, they're once yeah. removed and they're, they're coming at it from a completely different viewpoint. Well, so, they have to justify their existence in a way. I'm glad they're there. Don't get me yeah, wrong. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, you can always you can always maintain that it keeps some sort of debate going, and um, there are so many ways that our business is is being excluded from uh, mainstream media um, that 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 critics serve a useful purpose. Um, but uh, I I wanted to ask from that is that do you actually find um, negative criticism a stimulus then? No, I just don't read it. Uh -huh. I, I know what pieces work and what I need to work on. So because the contradictions are so incredible, like, God, Cold Mountain was amazing. I think we had 40, 50 reviews of that opera. So I think we had like three that were bad and the rest were good. And they've said such opposite things. So I was like, you know, I had someone else read them and I thought it just doesn't, I don't think it really matters. I'm glad we have a presence in the press, but you know, I'm constantly talking to audience members who are furious at whatever the local critic wrote. They're like, they're not at the same concert we are at. And it's interesting, Andrew, I had this one concert, I'm trying to remember where this was, it was in upstate New York. Oh, I can't remember the festival, but it was an unusual, it was the premiere of my piece Zaka with Eighth Blackbird. This was an unusual concert in that there were three contemporary pieces and there were three critics in the audience. And they, the concert concept was, were you at the same concert I was at? I think that was the title of it. And these, after each performance of the contemporary work, the three critics had to get up on stage and speak. They had to do their criticism in front of the public. 
And it was a revealing moment because the, first of all, the critics weren't hiding behind a desk, weren't hiding behind a typewriter, weren't hiding behind their computers. They were in front of the audience and they were having to critique and they were, they were terrified. And they admitted it because what would happen is your piece would be performed, you'd go up, you'd take a bow and you'd be coming off the stage, you'd come down the stairs as they were going up. <laughs> Oh, lovely. <laughs> it, was, it was funny because they were, I think I was the first on the program because the group went up and they were actually really well-known critics. They went up and they were like, oh my God, I didn't think about the fact that I have to say this in front of people. What are they going to think? And I thought, yeah, this is, this is what Tables it is. are turned. <laughs> I love it. But it also was very revealing because they look so ill because suddenly you could actually... You could actually see what they were saying. You could also see the audience's reaction. And you could also see that the audience just didn't agree with a lot of the things mm. that they, but I often hear that from people. I mean, I have a reviewer of the New York Times wrote once, this was early in my career. I didn't read it, but so many people sent me the quote that it has stayed in my, in my head. Um, I believe it was Anthony Tomasini made the comment that I was suspiciously prolific. And, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sure he didn't quite mean it as a compliment, but I have hung on to that laugh about it because I'm like, what does that mean? Do I have uh, another composer in the closet who's also writing or he doesn't yeah. believe that I have as many commissions? I have always valued that quote just because it kind of shows you a lot about what the field thinks and how it, it operates. So maybe because I'm not in New York, maybe he was like, how can this person be played by the Philadelphia Orchestra at Carnegie Hall and have all these commissions lined up, and I don't know this person's. So. And not live in New York. What an outrage. I you know, know. This, this ought to be um, an annual event. It should be like a spelling bee, you know, those, those <laughs> tournaments, you know, put the critics up on stage. And it was great. Let me tell you, they were terrified. I have never seen people so nervous on a stage, but they were completely terrified. And after they did the first one, they realized they were going to have to do it for the other ones. And mm. I mean, it was interesting. And, you know, I used to live next door to a critic and I remember he wrote a play and it went up and he, that guy was a nervous wreck because he realized he was going to be critiqued. So it's, uh, it's very interesting what it reveals, but I also don't think it's worth ingesting. I have no reason to read the stuff. I have no. a lot of performances and I'm working away and the, the, the people who matter to me are the performers and the basically the performers and the audiences. Mm -hmm. They're mm -hmm. going to come first because that's where the communication is supposed to happen. Uh, I think we're now at the point though, I don't know if there are that many critics around anymore. Well, that's why I, I qualified what I said earlier, but I'm, I'm yeah. glad they are around and where they yeah. are, long may they uh, yeah. thrive and, and prosper. Wherever they are. But we're, you know, we're now in an era where everyone writes critiques and I've seen people write critiques. They don't even go to classical concerts, so they have no knowledge or context. So it's, you have to take that with a grain of salt as well if you're going to read that stuff. The Perils of Modern Life. Yes. Hey, you know, um, I've got a list of questions here for you. I think they're all pretty probing. But the problem is mm -hmm. that you seem a pretty well sorted out person. And uh, some of them, they're going to be redundant from, from now on. So I'm I'm a little bit on the fly here. But I've... Um... That's okay. You can be on the fly. I'm on the fly too. So. <laughs> well, let's, um, let's think about um, um, success. And uh, does that does that apply pressure to your creativity you know the, the notion of wow i've won all these prizes i've won this people think i'm good crikey this piece better be good <laughs> yeah all the time all the time and you know mm -hmm. this was 
a couple of reporters pointed out to me uh, after the Pulitzer that there's a thing that they call the Pulitzer, what is it they said, the Pulitzer curse, that once you've won, it can kind of bring a load down on your creativity and on your shoulders and, and weight too much on you and that people often don't recover from that. So I had heard about this and I have to admit I have, my schedule is so packed with commissions that the best thing I could have done the day after the Pulitzer was to just go back to writing because I knew that it was a routine and I was just going on with the next work. So that's kind of how I deal with it. But it does, I do, I do have a lot more pressure now than I used to. I feel a lot more pressure, but I have to find ways to wall that off of my head so that it doesn't interfere. It doesn't interfere with me pushing my boundaries and trying to do the best, but I also have to be willing to give myself permission to withdraw pieces if they don't work, if I'm trying things in there. Oh, not. have you done that? Yeah, oh yeah. I have a trombone concerto I withdrew a couple of years ago, and I don't think the trombonists have forgiven me for it since then, mm. but yeah, I've, I have withdrawn pieces. I probably have withdrawn 30 or so. I mean, quite a lot, yeah. The trombone concerto was probably the biggest. That one was a commission from a major orchestra. It just, it wasn't fixable and it wasn't, I couldn't figure out what the issue was and it made me nervous every time I heard it out there, so I pulled it. I thought, why am I leaving this out in the world? It's just... So it was actually performed then? Oh yeah, yeah, it was performed quite a few times. And I wasn't sure whether maybe it was just, I had to get used to the piece or, I don't know, I couldn't figure it out, but it never worked. And it mm. always made me uncomfortable and I took that gut uh, feeling the gut reaction is a sign that the piece just wasn't going to be fixable. So I pulled mm. it. But a lot of trombonists are not too happy with me about it. I often get emails and letters and I get accosted when I'm in places, <laughs> public places. Well, I'm sorry about that. That's really <laughs> it's pretty funny, actually. <laughs> They're like, you owe us a trombone. <laughs> but you know, I, not long after I withdrew it, I got a commission for a little brass concerto, interestingly. So I feel like I made up for that. And, but it was a little scarier writing it because I'd written this trombone concerto and the thing just didn't work. Didn't work at all. Oh, mm. my cat My cat is coming in over here on the... The, the, the cat is very interview. impressive. And I've, I've, um, <laughs> I've got a lot of friends who wish this was video as much as, uh, as audio. <laughs> yeah. What I will say is there's a, a very sleek looking black cat that's taking over mm. proceedings. And, uh, <laughs> and she's coming and, over to see if she can lay down in the middle of everything here. So I will just let it happen. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> now, do you um, uh, do you consciously seek to have a distinctive voice? I mean, it's a very crowded world out there for composers. You've obviously made a colossal mark, and you're very you're very sure of yourself, and you know, as you say, you know what works, what doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, I read something the other day that you're probably the most performed classical composer in the world at the moment. Yeah, isn't that strange? No pressure. <laughs> I know. It's interesting. I only found that out accidentally recently. Uh, Stefan Venev has the, a website. Um, let me think. It's called the CCFOR. Wait. Sounds C -F very French. It's CFFOR. Sorry. I, I know. It stands for something. It's, but it's basically, it's a... It's a system where they're tracking 21st century music performances by orchestras. Uh -huh. And they asked all of the major publishers to submit performances starting in 2000 of their publishers. Uh, they contacted us and asked us to, to Laud and Press, my publishing, asked us to submit it. And lo and behold, when they actually ended up putting together the 
performance list. They actually, you can go on the site and look at the performance list. It's kind of interesting. Much to my shock, I was about 400 performances out beyond the next person. This is for orchestra performances. So, but I do have an extreme amount of band, choir, and chamber music that gets performed. So I'm- Is that I, where the money is? Uh, you know, it's a good question. I don't ever track it. I'm not the one who takes care of that anymore. So because wow, of that- Wow, you've, 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 you've really made it, girl, haven't you? It's I know, it's, kind of, it's not unreal. It's amazing. <laughs> but you know, I also don't take it for granted because I realize anything could go away in a oh. split second. If you've lived in a household with a freelance artist, you know that everything's temporary and everything fluctuates. But yeah, I have a lot of performances. I mean, even now, at this time, I think I've had uh, four or five performances in the past two weeks, which in a pandemic wow. seems unreal. But through the pandemic, we've also had constant orders, constant orders for music. Mm. And there are days where we carry out 10, 11 packages in FedEx, wow. which kind of blows my mind. I'm like, how many musicians could there be in the world? That's what I keep thinking. But yeah, there are a lot of performances and you can tell from the, the packages going in and out of here, whether it's rentals for orchestra or hmm. it's, but you know, it's what a fortunate thing. But getting back to your question about personal voice, I think, I don't know that I ever really thought that much about this when I was going through school because basically what happened was I started writing and I was writing according to commission and sometimes the commissions were for more um, I guess you might say academic sounding music like I have this piece rapid fire for solo flute that piece is pretty atonal it's got a lot of extended techniques it's very harsh it's actually a violent flute solo piece it may be the most violent one that's out there it takes a lot to play it um, and that's really contrasting to something like Blue Cathedral. Not as many people know about Rapid Fire or my two flute piano piece, Running the Edge, which is also very edgy. But I just figured that if I kept writing enough, usually a voice emerges if you write enough that you start to develop your own quirks and decision making, harmonically, melodically, rhythmically, orchestrationally. So I think I just didn't think that much about it. I was writing the entire time and I think it just happened. But I have to tell you, Andrew, there is this one interesting phenomenon that sometimes happens. People will sometimes hear one of my darker, more explosive pieces, and they're often very, very shocked. <laughs> and they say, my God, what is this? I didn't know the side of you. I'm like, well, I got a bunch of pieces like this. It's just they're not, they don't get as much, I guess, press or something, mm -hmm. or people are not as aware of them. I have a piece for percussion quartet and tape called Zones, which gets done a lot, but that piece is God, it is really dark. It's the kind of piece you do not want to be listening to in a dark room at night. It scared the daylights out of you. It scares me. <laughs> <laughs> Does composing come easily to you then? No, I don't think it's ever easy. <laughs> it's always a struggle. And every day I think, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to pull this off today. So it's a, it takes a lot of work. I mean, I write four to six hours a day and I probably get 10 to 15 seconds of music written. And that's a good day. Sometimes I'm actually erasing more than I mm. wrote in a given day. Mm. But I always think it is a bit of a struggle. I don't, it does not come easily. And it doesn't even come naturally to me. I feel like I have to really work to make the ideas work, to make the music interesting. And even that's a shot in the dark in a certain way. Well, don't you think the most interesting composers always struggled? 
Yeah, it's going to be facile, I would think. Isn't it? Yeah. yeah, I would think so. That's a good question. I've never really thought about it. I think of Mozart, Sanson, and Prokofiev as being people who could just churn it out off the top of my head. I'm sure there are, there are lots yeah. more besides. But yeah, but I think you're right. I think that may be true. But boy, Mozart has some beautiful opera stuff. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I he, he didn't do badly, did he? He didn't do too. I mean, he shows real promise. <laughs> <laughs> What do you what do you want to write that you've never been asked to? Ah, yes, I've gotten that question a lot. You know, somehow I managed. Oh, I, I think so that. hard for these questions. And <laughs> I know it's only listen. Don't feel bad, Andrew. I must do like I probably do five or six dozen interviews a year, and there are years where I do even more than that. Believe it or not, I think I at one point I had a list, but I'm making my way through the list. I'm actually getting to the point where I'm. I have to think about that and I haven't been able to come up with an answer. So I can't think of anything at the moment. Okay, so I'm sitting yeah. here, um, uh, music director of the greatest orchestra on the planet, mm -hmm. and I say to you, I would like to commission from you a 40-minute piece. Anything come off the, the top of your head? No, you know, one of the things I think I've learned in writing is it's generally not a good idea to do a 40-minute piece. <laughs> so, unless you're doing an opera or something. I'm my, One of my things in composing is to make everything very succinct. So before I wrote Cold Mountain, I told my librettist, Gene Shear, that I the only thing that I demanded was this had to come in under two and a half hours. That was the only rule. I said, so I will cut the story, I will cut the libretto, I'll do whatever it takes, but... I'm always very aware that composers often overstay their welcome. So I always try to go under the expectation and I try to make sure that when I'm, because of the way programming is for orchestras, I know they've got to really think about what they're balancing with an opener, a concerto, and then some larger work on the second half. Yeah, I'm trying to make you the main act in this show. <laughs> yeah. Well, fortunately for me, it's actually worked a couple of times because <laughs> it's funny, I'm trying to remember, I've had a couple of incidences where I was, I was in the concerto position on the concert, and there was, I remember I, Dvorak Nuger was on the second half. This happened with two different orchestras. So many people left at intermission that they ended up reversing the program to get people to stay, which I had never seen that happen, but they ended up putting my, see, it was the concerto for orchestra with one orchestra, it was the percussion concerto with another orchestra where this happened. They put that on the second half to get people to stay. And it actually worked, which I, first of all, I was shocked that they thought to do it. And then I just was even shocked that it worked because it's the, it runs counter to our wisdom about new music, where it should be on the program, yes. or what should be on the second half. So, um, well, that's, that's something I've just learned from, from this meeting then. And I'm going to try interesting, that. Isn't it? Yeah. I don't know. I'm not sure what the story was. And I'm, you know, it could be, it was a regional thing or people, See, the other composer it was Mahler on one program, and it was on two other programs where this happened. It was Dvorak New World. Well, I'm surprised there was room for you if Mahler was on the program. So. I know. Believe me. It was really, I know. That was my thought, too. So and they had that, that program seemed like it was divided weirdly. Like they actually had an intermission part of the way through the Mahler, weirdly enough, or something. It was something bizarre that I was yeah. like, wow. Well, that, that's, that's marked in, in a couple of the symphonies. Uh, yeah. Rather ambiguous language after the first movements, I think in two and th even three. Yeah, probably yeah. three. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, um, I'm grateful to you for, for the timing suggestion because 
if it's less than 40 minutes, obviously when I find the finances to do it and the sponsor to charm, it's going to cost me less. <laughs> That's it, exactly. I'm watching out for these things. Hey, this has been great fun, but I'm going to ask you one last question, mm -hmm. if that's, um, if that's sure. okay with you. And if you had to think of one thing, what is the one thing you want to be remembered most for, of anything in your life, not just music? Good grief. Ah, that I was kind. That's fair enough. <laughs> it was the number one lesson I think my parents uh, taught me. And I think it, it still remains to this day the most important. You know, what we do is hard. And working in the arts, it's pretty hard. But I also try to focus on the positive side. We, we are really putting positive energy out there in the world. And what we do has, it's good for everyone. That's the thing. So I have to remind myself, even when I'm feeling exhausted or things are maybe not going so well, that the whole point of this is to create good memories for people and to move them. And so I actually just really hang on to that. And But part of that is also just being a good person, mm. doing my best to honor others and help others and serve others. And I can't think of a more noble thing. So how lucky am I to get to make art for a living? It's absolutely the best. Well, Jennifer Higdon, I am incredibly grateful to you for your time today. You've been great fun. So has the cat. And, <laughs> She's sound uh, asleep down here. I guess oh. <laughs> I'm not interesting her too much. But she looks like she's doing okay. <laughs> Jennifer, thank you so much. That's wonderful. Thank you, Andrew. I appreciate it. The fabulous Jennifer Higdon. I told you she'd be entertaining. And what a terrific story. And if anyone can give the lie to the notion that to be in classical music, the entry point is preordained, and that only those with privilege and connections need apply, it's her. Next time, my guest will be Steinway's Ulrich Gerhards, who joins us from London to tell us all about what's needed to keep the world's finest concert pianos in tip-top condition and just how to manage the foibles of those great artists who drive them. I'm Andrew Constantine, and you've been listening to A Stick with a Point. <laughs>